Hello, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast, Physician Thriving. This is Dr. Hillary McClafferty, and my guest this morning is Dr. Joseph Hageman from the Northwestern University. He is an emeritus professor at the Feinberg School of Medicine. Joe, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Hillary. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Can you tell us a little bit about what your current title is now and what you're doing in medicine at the moment? Sure. Uh, right now, I am um, at the University of Chicago, Comer Children's Hospital. I am the, the neonatal intensive care unit, NICU quality person. Um, I also, for the previous five years, was the director of uh, pediatric resident research and basically helping uh, residents, fellows, now I'm working uh, more with the nurses and nurse practitioners on their um, their their projects as well as doing the QI. Got it. That sounds incredibly interesting. Give give us a brief overview of your medical training, if you would. I um, went to medical school at University of Illinois in Chicago, um, and then was a resident and neonatal fellow at what used to be Children's Memorial Hospital, uh, part of the Northwestern University system, um, now called the Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago, um, Feinberg School of Medicine, Northwestern University, um, and, and ended up practicing in one of the, the new, at the hospitals, Evanston Hospital, uh, which is now North Shore University Health System um, in, in Evanston, for about 27 years um, before I had to retire. Um, I was a clinical neonatologist and PICU person, also did apnea and had a research lab. Um, and uh, I actually had uh, a trans a, to reinvent myself, if you will, and around 1988 when I developed cervical dystonia and could no longer practice the neonatology. So then was doing it was a hospitalist before they were hospitalists officially mm -hmm. and a picky person, apnea person, et cetera, um, for until 2007. Well, that, so you've had a very rich uh, history and background in medicine for sure and had contact with untold number of residents and fellows and, and uh, trainees along the way. What what drew you to medicine in the first place? Well, I, I took differential equations as a freshman in college, and I came, I, which I got a C in because mostly I didn't understand it. And I came home and talked to my mom, who was this little Italian lady, and said, Mom, I don't want to be a math major. And so we sat down and talked, and she suggested that maybe biology would be a good uh, a good way to go. And that kind of led me to medicine um, in that way as I was uh, catching up for the next three years uh, in college to get decent enough grades to, to be able to be at least competitive for medical school. Oh, yeah. Th that's so funny. And uh, I'm sure your mom is and was extremely proud of you as you made your way through your um, training. Uh, when you think about your career in medicine, can you bring to mind some of the episodes, some of the um, happenings that have brought you greatest satisfaction in practice? I, I think that there is no greater feeling than to be able to help 
uh, infant or child or a, a teenager who is, you know, sick, critically ill, and, and their family, um, and to be able to help as a team to help uh, take care of and, and help that child to survive, that that kind of satisfaction, it's the clinical side that, for me, was the most um, satisfying um, there's there's very little in life, at least in my life, that it that comes even close to that kind of feeling. Um, I th I think that the other things that I that I really enjoy in medicine were, you know, actually the teaching, um, the research, and then la last but not least, uh, the administrative part of it. Right. Um, th those were all. I mean, the it's. I never thought of. Uh, what I did in practice as a, as a job for the most part. Yeah, you know that, and that is a tremendous perspective, really, to feel like you were not going in necessarily to a job. Did you? Would you describe it as a sense of calling uh, that pulled you in that direction, or did it develop gradually as you had your repeated exposures in training? I think it was more like the the latter. Um, I it it's like once I thought that it you know it, it was a good idea to try, then I I was a uh, an order an orderly um, <clears throat> in a couple different places. One was in the ER and uh, where I was going to college, and and the other one was um, in Hinsdale, Illinois, uh, as a geriatrics orderly. And it's like the more I got involved with the clinical care, the more I really loved it. And whether I was taking care of, you know, kids in some role or old people or, you know, um, it, that, that kind of stronger and stronger draw that, that drew me to it. And what I found as I got involved in medical school was that the kids were really where I wanted to spend my time. Mm -hmm. not, not that I didn't enjoy taking care of older people. Um, even when I was a geriatrics orderly, I really, I really love that. Plus, the nurses taught me to start IVs and everything as well. But the point being, it's like it was more of a gradual kind of process. Mm -hmm. Did that? Did it surprise you when that feeling really, when you recognized that feeling of satisfaction? Did you feel surprised? I was, yeah, and it was a very, it was a pleasant surprise. I, my mom and dad are both very sensitive people. Um, and, um, I, I feel like, you know, I was always kind of drawn as a people person. And but when I got into that situation where I was actually in some small way helping somebody, that was huge. You know, and we know that in medicine, um, all everybody involved in medicine, not just physicians, um, but we've certainly moved through some incredibly challenging times and also some incredibly challenging cases. And um, are you able to bring a case to mind, you, you know, without going into um, personal detail about the case or the patient, but are you able to bring a challenging case to mind um, and share with us how that changed you personally or challenged you personally? I, I think that, yeah, I had, a, I had more than a few of those. Um, 
And I, I think that I can think of one um, which kind of involved five um, um, patients, but point being, um, you had, it, when you kind of get into this role, when all of a sudden people are looking at you as the smartest person in the room, um, you, you have to develop a strategy, you know, professionally and personally. Professionally, so for critical care kind of thing, it's, you know, airway, breathing, circulation, cardiac airway, breathing. However, the point being you just you develop this strategy because frequently you're not completely sure what you're dealing with. So you do the basics to give yourself some time to develop a plan in your mind. Um, to give you some time to um, work things out and hopefully things would go in the right direction. Give yourself some time so that you can speak to the family um, and, and whoever else you need to talk to who are maybe involved with the, with the care. And then the, as almost as importantly, you have to develop a, a plan for how you need to um, figure out how you're going to react to the situation that you're in. Because I, in this one particular case, it, it was, this was, you know, your worst nightmare, um, you know, come true as a clinician. And all of a sudden, again, you're doing, you're coordinating care. And at the same time, you're trying to control your emotions that are involved. And so it's like, it's important, as important so that you can remain functional uh, and your mind can be clear. And then once you get a break, when, when that child is stable, you can kind of regroup, which I, I tended to do, um, you know, it was like I'd get a chance to go to my office or into a quiet room just for a second to kind of, um, you know, regroup and 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 recompose myself. People would say you're always so calm. Well, at least on the outside. Mm -hmm. uh, on the inside, you know, I ended up with a vagotomy and pyloroplasty for ulcer disease, um, and I developed cervical dystonia. How much of that is related to stress, and that and the fact that you're dealing with these incredibly difficult situations is nobody really knows for sure. But you can guess. You can guess that that's part of it. So it's like the thing is that those things, those kinds of situations kind of build you as a person. You also find out when you talk to people sometimes that maybe this isn't such a good idea for me. Maybe the, maybe being in this role is something that isn't positive for me. And I need to kind of sit down and reconsider. And I think we're kind of, it's a very dynamic situation. You're kind of doing, I think, doing that all the time in your career. I, I don't know if that helps. Absolutely. And, you know, as you moved through your career and had these repeated exposures, as, as all clinicians do, to these very, very tough cases, you know, what skills did you cultivate as you, it sounds like your awareness was increasing of the essentially the wear and tear of the of the work you know as you moved through your the different stages of your career what skills did you cultivate 
to help you uh, keep going and to, um, you know, find your way along the path. I, I think my, in a simplistic sort of way, my dad was a salesman, a sales manager, and he used to say, so, Joey, you need to have, think about things on a, the, the positive side and the negative side. And each day that you're alive and, and what you do, whatever you do with your life, there's, it's a balance. It's a dynamic balance. So you have to figure out, especially when things aren't going so well, where, what the positives, if there's, there's, you know, hopefully a po something on the positive side that balances out the negatives, like the, the stress and the wear and tear from what, what you're doing. And so that's kind of how I did it. And it's kind of like, okay, all right, here I am. I got a couple minutes to think about this. Things are going okay for the child. I've talked to the family. I've got a few minutes so I can maybe talk to my wife, Sally, who is an incredible positive in all of this. She is a, a nurse at Lurie Children's for 42 years and, and now does infusions for cancer kids. But she did everything but the NICU. And I could call her and talk to her for a couple of minutes. And are the kids okay? Is there anything that you need? And vice versa. She'd say, things are good here. Just go ahead and, and do what you need to do. And, and we'll talk to you when you get another break. That she was always a definite positive. My, my kids, our kids were as well. Um, and so, okay, that's on the positive side. If I get a few minutes and sometimes in the middle of the night, I, I pull out my Dickens list. And I, I like look to see with the book dealers before the, we had the internet, for instance, and figure out from catalog what, what Dickens novel I didn't have because I like to collect first editions and stuff. Um, a Christmas Carol is my favorite, but it's kind of like I use that almost as a positive balance. If I get a paper started or an idea for an article or a paper or a project, or some positive feedback, you know, like things are going okay, Joe, we, you know, we really appreciate the fact that you're here. Um, all of those things are positives and that balances out. It, it's like it gives you a few minutes to just kind of say, I'm doing okay. I mean, when you're in a situation like that and you feel like you're not doing okay and you, you also have to realize your limitations and look at your resources as well. So it's kind of like this dynamic balance, and that's kind of how I how I worked on it. Now, if I I wish that I would have learned mindful meditation and, and guided imagery, um, not in two thousand seven when I had was no longer able to practice and was depressed, clinically depressed. Um, but twenty seven years before that, it would have made you know the process. I think it would have been very helpful to have that have those skills. And that's I highly recommend that. To, to all of us to think about looking into it. It's, very, it's a very simple principle. It's like you're living in the moment, you're enjoying what you're, you're, you're experiencing in that moment. It's like you're letting the thoughts go through your mind and you're kind of like, I make like a checklist. Sometimes I write those things down, um, a checklist of things that I need to deal with in a couple of minutes. But for the moment, I'm just trying to um, breathe and and settle for a few minutes just to kind of calm myself down, especially when, you know, things are so complicated and, and maybe not going so well. 
So tell me more about how you discovered mindfulness. How did that all get started for you? Okay, so it, it happens when, um, so I developed cervical dystonia in 1988, and, and I was on medication for like 25 years, and then in, uh, around that, and then in, around 2007, I developed a choreoathetoid movement disorder and was having trouble. Um, went to the Mayo Clinic, they said, wait a second, you know, he, he can't practice anymore because, um, you know, I was just having trouble, enough trouble with the daily function, if you will. So I had to stop practicing. And that was like, that was it. And then I spent two years, thanks to you, Mickey Kaplan, who is the chair there, and it was one of my former fellows. Um, chair, he was the chair and the hospital itself with all of the time and effort that I had put into them, they said, okay, we're going to give you every opportunity to try to make a comeback. Um, and, and I wasn't able to do it. So, but it, in 2007, coincidentally, there was a, a, a psychologist named David Victorson who was every Tuesday at 4.30 for any of employee who wanted to could come down and learn mindfulness. And I went, well, this might be something that'd be worthwhile. And it's like I went every Tuesday at 4.30, and I ended up, you know, learning and practicing it. And now it's become an automatic part of my, uh, my routine because now I have um, a, a, a fair amount of chronic neuropathic pain. It's, it's about a 2 or 3 out of 10 all the time. And I, I, um, my cervical dystonia has come back in, in a variety of things. So day-to-day -day life is more of a challenge, and the mindfulness... And the guided imagery part of it is you're supposed to find a, a place in your mind that, that helps, that it's a per, kind of the perfect place for you. Well, all I've got to do is think about my neighborhood and my, and my home in Evanston. So that's easy. And the whole thing is these are cheap and easy things um, that I've learned, uh, you know, starting then that I use all the time now. You know, when you first started, that exploring mindfulness was there pushback from colleagues because that was you know in 2007 2008 you know what did what did your colleagues think about that i i kind of kept it and i i kind of didn't talk about it much mm -hmm. the funny thing about all of this is again i wasn't practicing at the time and and mickey and and my colleagues knew that i had problems Right. And I had gone from being the head of inpatient pediatrics and the PICU person and the apnea person, et cetera, to sitting at my desk. Uh, and luckily, Monica Joseph, one of my colleagues said, how about if you start, you know, teaching like I got an opportunity to teach the family medicine residents and the pediatric residents. So I, I kind of had time where I could keep my mind active, but still was having a, a real problem. The thing is that we generally don't don't talk about that stuff much um, it, because it, the concern is that people kind of wonder whether you're really functioning at the top of your game and when you're dealing with caring for people um, to know that there may be a problem um, in some way that you're, you may be that impaired physician. I, when I first got cervical dystonia in 1988, I actually, once it got under control, I helped set up the Impaired Physicians Committee at Evanston. And here I am in 2007, no longer able to practice um, and basically trying to 
make a comeback and stuff and, and not, and, and not being very successful. It's kind of like I became one. Um, but that's not something that in general that we, we, we talked to our boss, our, our chair, our, our section chief, our friends, but it wasn't something that, um, you want to kind of admit. Right. At that time. Well, and you know, what's striking me in part about your experience and your story is that you, you had colleagues who really cared about you and who were reaching out to you, checking in and offering suggestions and, and, um, you know, that is so incredibly valuable and, uh, you know, really critical for all of us to be able to look around and look at our colleagues and recognize someone that, you know, may need, uh, some connection is there is there an approach that you use if you see a colleague who you may think uh, could benefit from a connection with a caring colleague what what do you do it's interesting because um, in addition to all of this um, about six years ago I had a I, I'm actually a swimmer and um, I was in, I got out of the pool at Northwestern University um, in Evanston and said, uh, this, this pain that I'm having, this tightness is just costochondral, went into the locker room and collapsed and was in V-fib and needed five, five shots. Oh. And they got me, one of my friends got me back in the ER at Evanston. And it's like, so every day that I'm alive and I've got my four vessel bypass and, and got cardiac rehab and stuff, Every day in life, I, I'm first of all, I'm very grateful uh, and and fairly religious about this. Again, you don't have to be, but it's kind of like whatever your orientation is, you, that you're just grateful that you're alive. And that in addition to that, that if I can help somebody, one person, one of my colleagues in some way. So the thing is, once you've been clinically depressed um and you're and you're you do this for a living it's kind of like you can rec you can think you can start to recognize it in, in your friends and colleagues like for instance how um I, i've done this a number of times now with some colleagues and said uh, you know are you doing okay you you seem a little frustrated or a little tired or a little you know and with all of this this discussion, a lot of which you are pioneering uh, with the physical wellness, this this business about burnout and stuff, it's like it, it once I've got once I get if I get it, no, I'm okay. Um, that's okay. Just kind of I keep looking for clues, you know, clinical clues. Um, and then once in a while, what happens is like when we're in the person's office and we start talking, then they'll start to kind of talk. I've had conversations start out talking about whatever and end up talking for two hours about, you know, the fact that that um, that they're, you know, having trouble figuring out whether they want to continue practicing or not. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like trying almost as a clinician to recognize that there may be a bit of a lead in. And, and again, it's like. Uh, it, it, it's it's just something that um, I feel like I've been given this opportunity to help in some way, which kind of led to a lot of this writing. Um, and I've had a lot of personal experience with this. And if I can help 
somebody not have to go through some of this stuff, then I, so it's kind of like you put your, cl your clinician hat back on and you start looking for clinical clues. And if you just get a feeling, you just look, maybe sometimes all they're looking for is a lead, an opportunity, and they just start talking. That is so insightful. And I really appreciate that, that comment. I think that a lot of physicians are, you know, tend to self-isolate, especially when they're distressed. And to have the collective group of physicians, so to speak, keeping an eye on it out for each other, you know, I think that could really, um, really help a lot of people. Um, are there any other topics that you'd like to touch on before we wrap up? Other things that are on your mind in the area of physician well-being? I think it's the big thing is it's like now I'm, I'm working with a lot of very um, dedicated um, people here, just like when I worked at Evanston or Children's or wherever, apprentice. Um, and I think if I can say, just please give yourself a few minutes um, on a regular basis just to kind of um, have some quiet time. And, and I, I think that John Kabat-Zinn, who developed mindfulness, kind of said, you know, so just try to be mindful just for a few minutes so you can kind of kind of recompose yourself and and give yourself some time some down as my wife Sally um says some downtime um one day she one night she came home and she was telling me about her patients she'd care for you know all these young um people with cancer and said she hun I just need to sit and decompose and when I started laughing she kind of said that's not funny I'm just trying to what what she meant was just decompress. Mm -hmm. So point being, it's like give yourself some time to decompress mm -hmm. just for a few minutes because it makes a huge difference. And that's all I think part of the mindful being mindful and um, taking care of yourself. And sometimes what happens is when you stop and think and you're starting to think about things and thoughts go through your mind, you recognize that there may be an issue that you need to deal with. And when you're so busy clinically, you just kind of put that in the back. Well, no, look at what, what's going on with me is it as important as what I'm dealing with here. I want to, again, say thank you to Dr. Joseph Hageman, Professor Emeritus at Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us 